Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Thailand Ginger. I'm Michael Talbot. We are joined today by Dr. Philip Wirtz, a senior teaching fellow at the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London and Warwick University. He completed his PhD on the representations of the Ottoman Empire in Turkish autobiographies at SOAS. And I'm pleased to say will be published by Ashgate in summer 2016 with the title Image of a Past World, Depictions of the Late Ottoman Empire in Turkish Autobiographies. Today's discussion is also on the late Ottoman Empire, but on his current research interests on German expatriate observations of Ottoman culture during the Second Mishrutiyet, or Second Constitutional Era. Philip, if you can give us a very brief overview of the German-Ottoman relationships during the Second Constitutional Era, or even before. Most people who do things Ottoman and Turkish studies have seen this, is that um, the huge topic, obviously, is... uh, Turkish people going to Germany in the 1950s and 60s. And very rarely in that context, um, people bring up the um, long-standing contact that goes back all the way into the late 18th century, where um, the the reforming Ottoman state was looking to German experts to um, uh, retrain its military. Um, A lot of people probably know the book by a a Prussian uh, instructor called Helmut von Moltke, who wrote a series of of quite charming letters back home uh, about his experiences in the Ottoman army and fighting Mehmed Ali uh, in in central Anatolia in the 1830s. Um, And this military connection continues and gets an engineering technological connotation in the 1860s, 70s with uh, the rise of infrastructure projects in the Tanzimat era, especially railroads. Um, So the the idea that a lot of people have of Germans in the Ottoman Empire is that of um, military instructors and engineers, um, what has been overlooked for a long time is um, that, uh, well, these people, they're, they're people. Not surprisingly, um, these people don't stay among themselves, they connect with their host country. And there are people who learn Ottoman and other languages that are around in the empire that become quite proficient in it, who interact with Ottomans on a daily basis and who write about their experience. Could you perhaps say a bit more about this kind of cultural exchange? So, I mean, obviously Germany in the 19th century, at the end of the 19th century, is this centre of art, of music, of political discourse as well. How far are these clubs becoming centres for that kind of culture of artistic and musical uh, development? Of course, you have um, German German culture being and uh, cultural expression being exported, and uh, theatre productions, musical concerts being put up in these places, which are for the German um, community there, but are are being attended by other nationalities as well, including the Ottomans. And you you can get that, for example, from memoirs of pe- uh, people as who are as children uh, being as quite a lot of people are still today being forced to learn the piano by their parents and and what they also play is is German music from Mozart to Wagner and um, so there's an interest and an awareness for that in in Ottoman uh, in the Ottoman public which we very often see as being being um, highly francophile but there's an interest in things German as well Um, there's also um, and obviously these clubs and and, um, events are visited by other uh, European communities and also, it works the other way around. Um, the Germans are going to the theatre in Istanbul or, or elsewhere. They um, um, they don't stay cut off from what the Ottomans do. 
Germany was this was the center essentially for studies of Arabic, of Turkish and Persian in the 19th and 20th centuries. So it's it's fascinating to see this. What about the, the more kind of explicit political agenda? So you mentioned earlier this strong military alliance. How far do these German clubs and cultural activities act as a kind of conscious political forum to put forward the ideas and the alliances that were coming from Berlin? There is sometimes a bit of an overemphasis, especially if you're sort of, um, looking at it from the British perspective, about how how strong and how potentially dangerous the German presence in the Ottoman Empire actually is. Um, German imperialism, whether soft or hard, is a bit of a, a haphazard and often improvised thing that starts late in in uh, the imperial age, in the imperialist age in uh, the 1870s. And there's a huge debate, inter an internal debate in German politics to what extent Germany should be a colonial power. There is, however, a very strong lobby for these colonial enterprises. And later on, uh, when Emperor Wilhelm II comes to, to power, he's, a, um, he's a, a force behind this as well. And there are people who advocate that um, a lot of German effort should be in the Ottoman Empire. And there's two positions here. People see it as uh, a declining state that's ripe for the taking and uh, where a, an imperialist power could insert itself in and um, do something for its interest. And there are people who um, openly say, and this is an actual newspaper headline, only Turkey can be Germany's India. Mm. Um, and there are others who say that um, Germany should be active in the Ottoman Empire because this is a rising power. Mm. And this happens increasingly after 1908, because the Young Turk regime is seen by some German observers as uh, an, an invigorating force. And on that point, though, how is the Tanzimat and the reforms in the Ottoman Empire seen by Germany and, and German intellectuals, I suppose? It is seen in, in similar ways by some as it's done by other German observers. If you think of Gladstone's fam infamous pamphlet on the Bulgarian horrors, uh, where he basically says that uh, Ottoman reforms are simply, that's simply French and British money being at work and not much of an Ottoman impetus. And there are German observers who are saying just that, that the, the sick man of Europe is just a sick, a sick man. Um, never mind who leads the country, whether Abdul Hamid or some nebulous committee. There are others, on the other hand, who say that um, Ottoman reforms are a sincere effort and that this is a rising power in southeastern Europe because of that. And it's a rising power just as Germany had been a rising power 40 years before. And so that the two might very well go together because they're on a similar tra trajectory and uh, they have similar interests. OK, so just as a recap, uh, we, we've looked at um, the, the Ottoman period and the Ottoman context. It's a time of reform. It's a time of change. Uh, the constitution is uh, implemented. There's a parliament. Uh, this is the time of Abdul Hamid II in, uh, reigning in 1876 to 1909, just at the uh, uh, the beginning of um, the Young Turk Revolution in 1908 and the Second Constitutional Era. So we're, we're seeing that the Ottoman Empire is in a time of fundamental change. And this mirrors, of course, <clears throat> in some ways what's going on in Germany. Germany, of course, a very new state founded after the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-1871, um, also going through fundamental political changes, the advent of the proto-welfare state, um, Bismarck's reforms, Wilhelm II, um, new strident foreign policy. So it's an exciting time for 
both of these uh, polities, one very old, one quite new. But now perhaps we should move on to think about the individuals that are at the heart of your story. So would you be so kind as to talk us through some of the case studies that you'll be looking through as part of this project? This is actually ongoing. I'm still finding new people to look at. I started with two um, people, one an academic, one a journalist. Um, and they're, interestingly enough, they both start out as academics in this rising um, discipline of Middle East studies at German universities um, or, or Asian studies, Oriental studies, you could call them. It's um, they're, they're, In German, this is called Orientalistic, which uh, somehow awkwardly translates as Orientalism, but they're, they're not the same thing, um, obviously. But um, the um, one is a, a, a chap called uh, Friedrich Schrader, who starts as, an, as a, someone who studies India and ancient India. He does his PhD in Sanskrit, and he goes on to um, become um, a teacher at, um, he, at, at, um, in Istanbul because uh, there's a, there are job openings for him at uh, some of the German schools and he also gets a job at Robert College while he's there. And as he goes there, he puts his language talent to learning Ottoman um, and um, a couple of other languages as he goes along. He does a short stint in Baku where he picks up Russian and returns um, to, the, uh, to Istanbul uh, to take up a job at a German newspaper there, of which we are, I think we're going to talk more. And um, his, he immerses himself very much in the Ottoman uh, society. His second wife is an Ottoman uh, subject of, of Bulgarian extraction. And the other person I'm looking at is uh, someone called Martin Hartmann, who uh, starts out as an academic, does a PhD in Arabic, um, and he becomes... He also leaves academia. He becomes a dragoman with the German embassy in Beirut. Um, and he has spends a long time in Beirut and uh, traveling uh, the hinterland of Bilad al-Sham. And he develops a very soft spot for the Ottoman Arabs, especially the Christian Arabs, who he sees as um, um, he becomes a, a very big Ar Arabophile. Um, and somewhat critical as well of the Turkish element, which he sees as holding the empire back. So it's very interesting to see how these people develop uh, favorite groups within the Ottoman, the fabric of the Ottoman Empire. And Hartmann um, left us two very charming books uh, of collected articles, notes and letters that he wrote during a, a period of travel in the Ottoman Empire between uh, 1907 and 1910. Um, and I'm, I'm looking at some of these. He um, travels. By that time, he had left the diplomatic service and become an academic again in Berlin. And he travels back uh, occasionally to uh, hunt for manuscripts. Um, and Hartmann has this interesting aspect where he, uh, he judges very much what he sees. So he goes around hunting for manuscripts, buying books. He's also interested in contemporary books. He he buys um, new new editions, new publications. Um, he's interested in contemporary Ottoman literature. So he uh, and he goes around to readings. He visits literary clubs, and he never holds back with his opinion. Sometimes really vitriolic about how he sees this cultural development going. So you've introduced two characters, Martin Hartmann and Friedrich Schroeder. Uh, Martin Hartmann, uh, perhaps notably, enters the Ottoman world as a, as a dragoman. Uh, he's, a, he's a consular interpreter. I mean, is that the typical path of a, of a German expatriate into the Ottoman world? No, it's, it's not. And I, I would be hard-pressed to see if, if there is a, typ a, typ uh, sorry, a typical path. 
Um, there are various entryways. Uh, one of them is, is the German consular service, which would not be a very widespread one. Another one is um, the, like Schrader does, taking up an appointment, whether it's a teaching appointment or some job in engineering. The other, the third big path, obviously, is the military path of military instructors. And um, there's one German lady uh, with another wonderfully German name, um, Elsa von Kamphövner, who becomes known as a collector of Anatolian folktales. And her father is a military advisor during during the time of Abdul Hamid. So there are quite a few ways to get there, to end up in the Ottoman Empire. Fascinating. I mean, but then they seem to be also quite exceptional. I mean, Hartmann going to these literary salons. I mean, could you say more about his experiences there and how he ended up being invited to these um, gatherings? Yeah. What he does, he's making the rounds of the bookstores and the libraries, and he talks with librarians, and he seems to, he records in his books how, how he seems to meet literati in the bookstores, in the cafes next to the bookstores, and he gets invitations to, uh, to clubs and to readings, and this is how, where he meets people, and he um, makes appointments later on to meet them in private and to talk more. One of his contacts that he develops in this way is the, the, po uh, the poet Mehmet Emin Yurdakul, uh, Yurdakul, obviously later after the name reform, um, he calls him uh, Mehmet, Mehmet Emin Effendi, and uh, he gets into quite close personal contacts, and it looks as if they had been exchanging letters even later on after Hartmann left the Ottoman Empire. And I'm also trying to locate some of these letters, which might be, um, I still have to confirm that, which might be in Hartmann's papers, which are held by the University Library of Halle in Germany. And Philip, Mar Martin Hartmann's observations he made uh, during his time in Izmir, I think in 1909, were published uh, in a, a book uh, called The Apolitical Letters from Turkey in 1910, I believe. Why, why, were, why were they apolitical? Why mention the fact that they're apolitical? Yeah, you, you mentioned Izmir, is, which is where he, he starts uh, so his, his uh, series of, of ramblings. Um, that uh, is, um, so he, he goes from Izmir to Istanbul and then he, he circulates around Istanbul. And Izmir is uh, a point where he makes a, a, po a series of political observations in spite of his book being called Apolitical Letters. He observes... Uh, what's left of the enthusiasm after the Young Turk Revolution, where everyone is in everyone else's arms, um, and he makes some uh, rather gloomy predictions uh, how how strong this feeling of Ottoman uh, fraternity will be in the long run. Uh, maybe this is with uh, quite a, a healthy dose of hindsight, given that it was published in 1910. Um, and then he continues, and uh, the, the majority of his observations are not so much on politics um, rather than on uh, literature, culture, what is written, what is put on the stage in the theatre, uh, but also a little bit on cultural politics. He um, records and talks about discussions about language reform, but he makes a strong point that um, he's calling his book Unpolitical Letters from Turkey, because he is, on the one hand, he is not financed by any political party back in Germany. He's not reporting back to any parliamentary committees, which was what a lot of writers were doing. So you have, at the same time as Hartmann, you have a genre developing of writers, journalists who are going to the Ottoman Empire, writing on politics, interviewing Enver Pasha or dis uh, accompanying the Ottoman army as they campaign in, Al in Albania in 1912, sorry, um, and who then act as basically com political commentators 
or who might at the same time have an agenda being financed by political parties trying to influence German politics in a way pro or con alliance with the Ottoman Empire. So this this political commentary seems fascinating and perhaps we can move to the other subject of, of your talk today, um, Schrader. So you mentioned that he writes for a number of newspapers and of course in this is a really important time in the Ottoman and Turkish press, newspapers like Iqdam that are really kind of pushing forward different um, political agendas. How does Schrader fit in with this new print culture? Yes, right. 1908 is um, really a point where obviously the, a lot of the censorship and restrictions of the Hamidian period get lifted and the Ottoman press landscape um, almost explodes with um, including some newspapers that are um, with with interruptions are still still around even today. And um, in at this point, uh, the German uh, diplomatic service decides that uh, they should have some sort of um, tool of propaganda and influence on the Ottoman reading public. And there should be uh, a German voice should be heard in the Ottoman press landscape, which is when uh, in 1908, uh, with the support of the German embassy, the newspaper uh, Osmanischer Lloyd, Ottoman Lloyd, is launched, which is a bilingual um, newspaper. They Obviously, they want to make it a German uh, presence, but the problem is that uh, among Ottomans, the uh, pretty much the only German speakers tend to be army officers who have been trained in Germany. There's not so much of a German readership. And um, apparently it was too expensive to print the newspaper in Ottoman because of the typeset. And so they, they come up with the, the solution that they, this newspaper, which is uh, rather small and thin, um, it's, it's got six page, four to six pages in German. And then it's, in the back it's got four pages of French. Le Lloyd Ottoman, which is the, the French section of it. And Schrader gets a job writing and editing for this paper. So who is this paper aimed at? I mean, it's got the German and the French. Is this the, the Ottoman intelligentsia? Yes, and um, pretty much uh, the, the, German, the German community, anyone else in Istanbul and a bit beyond, I'm not quite sure how, much, how far this circulated beyond Istanbul, uh, anyone who might read German, and also um, the vast number of people who read French. And so this would have found quite a bit of circulation because it had... Um, uh, economic news. It had uh, news about shipping, about um, uh, uh, um, so what, what goes on at stock exchanges all over the world. So this would have been ex uh, important for people in commerce. But it also at the in the German section it had um, news on German politics, what goes on in the German Parliament, um, international news actually in both parts, and then. An interesting part where Schrader does a lot of his writing is in the middle of the paper, towards the end of the German section, it has um, uh, what uh, Central European newspapers call, call a feuilleton, uh, which is um, basically about literature, the arts, um, which has um, um, a serialized novel, um, some normally some now forgotten German novel, and uh, which interestingly has a lot of um, reviews on books published in Ottoman, um, it has reviews of theater productions being put on in places like uh, like the Petit Champ in Pera. And it has um, short selections from Ottoman newspapers reprinted, translated in German from um, newspapers, for example, Tanin. 
and it has uh, sort of comments and reactions on these um, on what the Ottoman press says. Before we perhaps come on to the content of these reviews, you mentioned that there's reports on what's going on in German politics, and of course, German politics at this point in the 20th century is quite split. There's the strong monarchical camp, but there's also a growing socialist movement, one that's also growing in the Ottoman Empire with newspapers like Ishtirak. How does Schrader fit into that kind of political landscape? It's funny that you that you mentioned the newspaper Ishtirak because um, Schrader himself is uh, seems to have been left leaning, and um, if I need to find out whether he was a, a fee paying member, but he was certainly um, uh, close to to the Social Democratic Party in Germany, and he wrote uh, for their newspaper. Uh, even before 1908, on uh, Middle Eastern and Ottoman affairs, and his pseudonym was Ishtiraki. And he keeps writing under that pseudonym for German newspapers while he's at the Ottoman Lloyd. And even later, after 1908, until, um, he dies in, in 1922, but uh, in the years, last years leading up to his death, he writes for German uh, left-leaning newspapers, still calling himself Ishtiraki. Mm. So um, this comes in here, and there's a, a bit of a political uh, angle to this uh, opinion, these differing opinions in the German in German politics and the German public, what to do with the alliance to the Ottomans. Um, and there's a, a lot of criticism from the left of this expansionist um, imperialist camp that uh, sort of thinks of the Ottoman Empire as a as a playground for imperial ambitions. And uh, actually, uh, Schrader tends to get into problems for his left-leaning uh, views throughout his career, which uh, and his criticism of this hawkish camp in German politics eventually leads to his dismissal from the paper Ottoman Lloyd in the middle of, of the First World War, when, when he gets a bit too, too outspoken. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. Uh, Michael Tablet and I, Tai Langinger, are joined by Dr. Philip Wirtz discussing German cultural observations. So far, we've spoken about uh, two characters, Martin Hartmann and Frederick Schroeder, and we've also talked about uh, German newspapers being published at the time. Philip, are there any other uh, German cultural observations? I mean, I'm thinking particularly of the reviews and perhaps any in terms of the theatre, in terms of plays, perhaps. Yes, of course. Throughout this, I'm I'm very much interested in how um, German expatriates in the Ottoman Empire take part, not just as observers, but as participants, as audience, and maybe in some ways contributors in um, in Ottoman cultural production. And one way of how I first came across it, this is um, the um, uh, reviews that I mentioned that are published in this German newspaper uh, about. Um, literature being published, uh, plays being staged in Ottoman. Both Schrader and Hartmann um, write about these things for papers back in Germany. Hartmann actually publishes a book on uh, poems of New Turkey, Dichter der Neuen Türkei, uh, which is um, sort of an, not really an anthology, but um, a set of portraits, a series of portraits of writers uh, currently 
working in the Ottoman Empire in the time during the time he's there. And you find uh, sort of relatively obscure people, but people who, who um, uh, we still have an idea about who are still, even still in print, um, they comment on people like uh, Halid Edip or Jakub Kadri, Karos Manolo, um, people like this. Um, I already mentioned uh, Hartmann's exchange leading to a friendship with uh, Mehmet Emin Yurdakul. So there are these contacts as well. So what, what they write um about Ottoman literature, about Ottoman theatre, is based on uh, personal observation. Uh, it's also quite interesting that uh, these uh, theatre reviews are written, obviously people like Schrade were fluent in Ottoman and could follow what was going on. Um, I'm trying to figure out who they're writing for, whether they would have a German audience that is equally fluent in Ottoman to follow Ottoman theatre production, or whether this is aimed at um, Ottomans reading German and being in some sort of dialogue with um, these German readers and with uh, the Ottoman publications. This question of audience perhaps leads us on nicely to the subject of your forthcoming uh, monograph um, on autobiography at the end of uh, the Ottoman Empire going into the, the Republic of Turkey. And one of the tensions that seems to be there in your work in both the new project and the old is the tension between observation and participation. So the images that are created from memory and then put forward to a potential audience to reform or reshape images of the Ottoman past. Could you perhaps say something about the characters that you've chosen to observe yourself um, for this um, monograph study? Well, the first um, parameter in uh, selecting works that I was looking at was, was laziness, obviously. Um, I was looking at uh, some books that were relative, uh, easily available that were still in print. And that became, um, that be, uh, out of laziness, grew uh, the, the idea that uh, this might be something noteworthy, that these things are, they, they get printed, they get published, and they're, they're still in print. And there's even a renaissance of uh, rather old uh, autobiographies first published in the 1930s, 40s, or um, or a bit later in contemporary Turkey, that people are interested in that again. So that um, the the picture that grew out of this was uh, really the, the observation that um, throughout the 20th century, the, throughout the existence of the Turkish Republic, there ha has been an interest in writings about the lost, the past world or lost world, the, the Gechmej Alem, um, as one author puts it, of, of the Ottoman Empire, and that in the first step, the authors view this, their own past, their childhood and early youth that happened before the Republic came along, as something worthy of being written down and remembered. But also, um, this is something that is being read throughout the Republic's existence and into, into the modern day, that people are... Um, interested, obviously, for, for various reasons. And nowadays, it might be some sort of uh, nostalgia um, that that people are interested in reading these things. And they are still marketed as a look into history and as a, a window into a past world. So could you perhaps talk a bit more about this Getsch Mishalem? So what are the kind of common themes of this past world that your authors draw out? What was this past world like? Uh, one bit they, they all begin with is, is that this past world is noteworthy, it's important, and it is something that can teach something to later generations. 
that that's a very common theme in in almost any sort of autobiography but it, it's uh, a very strong point is made about this here as well uh, most authors move on to their childhood reflecting on how their childhood formed them that uh, and you get some very interesting statements here that somebody who grew up in poverty in a, a, a poor neighborhood of Edirne and Shevket Zuria Aydemir, quite a, a famous and prolific writer in the 1930s uh, and later, uh, even later on, um, and he said that his uh, um, his poor upbringing and the depression that was over this community he grew up bec uh, because these people were muhajir, uh, displaced from the, the lands around the Danube, has sharpened his view for social inequalities and for uh, um, for things that go wrong in society, which is obviously some hindsight interpretation because he was this very uh, um, sharp social commentator and, uh, in the 1930s. Um, and so explaining who you became by how you were brought up, that is very important. Um, so, and you get um, observations, almost ethnological ex uh, uh, observations on how life was before electricity, before running water. Um, a very charming account of growing up in Ankara around 1900 is by Vehbi Koch, who obviously uh, went on to become uh, the richest man in Turkey or the second richest. I don't have the statistics, but um, he makes a big point that he grew up in a in a very humble household where they did not even have cutlery to eat with. And uh, it's very detailed on the different types of kerosene lamps that are used and that people don't have running water, etc. And the uh, the entrance of modernization into that world is also commented on and uh, sometimes reflected on in a way what did modernization do to us did it really make our lives better or was it perhaps a little bit more comfortable and more charming later on there's one story of an author who grew up in Salonika where his family gets a modern a la franga style living room uh, next to the old uh, haramlik where his, the, uh, the family's women, the grandmother and, and um, aunts, etc., were sitting on a low divan. And he tells us about how the family tend to, tended to gravitate back to the, the Alaturka-style living room and leave so the new-style living room for, uh, for grand occasions. So you get these sort of uh, uh, reflections um, on how the childhood world looked like. And the next step that most of these authors talk about is education. Um, and they, quite a few use that for uh, denouncing what they see as the old-style Ottoman education, especially the primary school, the Mektep, and the step from Mektep um, to a, a secondary, a modernized secondary school, um, like, like a military school in some, some cases, or how there was a conflict between organized schooling and homeschooling, um, different forms of informal education what people pick up through their own reading, un, some often unguided reading, which was at odds and variance with the school curriculum. Um, there, there are some t uh, interesting connecting points with uh, the, the scholarship of Benjamin Fortner in his, in his latest book about uh, learning to read what people read and, and that it's not often what so parents and schools want you to read. So, Philip, this is the late Ottoman Empire. It's a time of uh, modernization, of, uh, of reform, of a lot of change. And your uh, monograph, The Image of a Past World, depictions of the late Ottoman Empire and Turkish autobiographies that will be coming out soon, 
is is really this uh, kind of view, this uh, Ottoman Turkish view of you've mentioned the Alafranga and the battles with the Alaturkan, you know, which ones to to adopt and the, the difficulties with, with adaptation, I suppose. And that's kind of the, the Ottoman, the Turkish view of this modernization process. And your current research interest, the, the, the one, uh, uh, what we've discussed so far, which is the German Western observations of uh, the late Ottoman Empire, of this modernization process. And that's kind of the flip side of uh, what's going on and the, the observations that we can uh, that we can follow. Are there any wider commentary that you can make on perhaps this period of modernization? I mean, we, you've, you've both looked at it uh, from the uh, view of the, the Ottomans and you're also looking at it from the view of the Western Germans. Surely there must be some interesting uh, observations of our own to make on this. Sure. Obviously, um, the, the autobiographies make a lot of points about modernization and change and they tend to praise it on the whole because a lot of these authors of autobiographies are uh, I would call them ex-Ottomans now citizens of the Turkish Republic who have a stake in this new republic and a uh, and a position and a, and a reputation to lose and obviously there's a certain element of, of praise for the new republic including criticism um, which is given openly or between the lines but um, in general, pro-change and pro-modernization with an element of nostalgia obviously thrown in for things like language. Um, Halide Edip Adavar in her very detailed uh, two-volume autobiography at several points uh, says that the Turkish language, the modern Turkish language, has become poorer for getting rid of, of uh, especially of Persian. And there's a, a connecting point here in, in this uh, element of nostalgia of uh, modernization, getting rid of a lot of what was nice and good. Um, there's a connection here with um, the, the Western perspective, um, which is, in contrast to the, the autobiographies, is obviously a contemporary observation. The autobiographies has a couple of decades in between, with all that comes in in this in-between period, whereas um, observations by journalists or German expats um, in, written down in 1910 or 1912 are, are a lot more immediate. But both genres have this element of judging modernization and change and saying something, commenting on whether this is effective, whether this is true change, whether it leads to positive development, whether it is thought out. Um, uh, Martin Hartmann, as we mentioned before, um, talks about language reform and where language and literature are going. And he is a, a great advocate for Turkish language reform. Um, and he praises his friend Mehmet Emin Yurakul for writing in easy Turkish language with getting rid of all the baggage that, as he sees it, of um, highfalutin, Persianized, Arabized Ottoman. At the same time, uh, he's, a, he's a friend of the Arabs, but of the Arabs as themselves and not as the Arabs as an influence on, um, on Ottomanism, so he, or on, on things Ottoman, and he comments on he and a lot of other Western observers um, talk about the rise of nationalism and how they see it. And there's two sides, people saying that the Ottoman Empire will continue to exist as a multi-ethnic entity and that's all fine and people are standing behind the new regime after the Young Turk Revolution. And there are others and Hartmann tentatively falls into that camp uh, who say that the only 
hope for the Ottoman Empire will be its uh, its gradual sort of shrinking to health. That is a German a German uh, uh, expression, Gesundschrumpfen, shrinking to health, uh, along the lines of um, uh, of national groups, and as yet an, a completely different position which links with some of the points made by Ottoman and Turkish observers themselves in their memoirs is uh, a nostalgia for the old and the quaint, uh, which, for example, comes out in a book that uh, Friedrich Schrade writes, uh, which is entitled something like Memoirs of Old Istanbul, um, Old Constantinople, as he calls it, where he talks about um, nice and quaint and, for us modern observers, blatantly orientalistic uh, views on society, Ottoman society. And a big feature of that society is multi-ethnicity. And he already in, this was published in 1917, in the middle of the First World War, already then he says that this is a vanishing world. The only question that remains, I suppose, is what have you got left to do? I mean, the personal papers sound like a potentially interesting avenue. Um, what remains to be done in this field more generally? In this field, I think uh, this personal perspective from first-person narratives, um, looking at uh, the private opinion of foreigners in the Ottoman Empire, not just Germans, but from my perspective now Germans, um, should be looked at because a lot of the politics around their presence there has been studied uh, in recent scholarship. Um, there's um, a fantastic book on the academics by Suzanne Marchand, uh, German, or, uh, German academics in, in the uh, imperial age, um, which is extremely good on the academic background of these people. Um, and I'm hoping in this project to, uh, in the first step, to look at um, more case studies to people uh, it's just a bit narrow and I, I have identified quite a few interesting subjects and I've spent quite a lot of time with the published sources. I'm obviously going to continue that, but uh, I have identified personal papers. For example, there's this tantalizing um, thing dangled in front of my head by uh, the University Library in Halle that uh, Hartmann's private papers amount to something like 64 archive boxes. So uh, bottom line, uh, looking at the private papers and, and see how they, in what extent they speak to the published material and, and continue in this way. There is a relevant bibliography to the topic discussed today on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you can also find our other podcasts. And why not follow us on Facebook for the latest news? Thank you for listening. <laughs>